Welcome to Hope for Life, a broadcast ministry of the First Baptist Church of Ferndale, Washington, bringing you hope for life through the teaching of God's Word. Today, Pastor Lunsford is continuing his sermon series in the book of Hebrews. If you would like to follow along, you can open your Bible to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. Starting in Hebrews 12, verse 18. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word would not be spoken to them anymore for they could not endure what was commanded quote and if so much as a beast touches the mountain it shall be stoned or shot through with an arrow unquote and so terrifying was the sight that Moses said quote I am exceedingly afraid and trembling unquote but you have come to Mount Zion to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks of better things than that of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. This is a long passage of scripture, but I think we need to consider it all together to grab the broad message that he's sharing with us. And he starts by saying, our position enables us to succeed in the Christian life. Look what he says in contrast. In, and again, in verse 18 of Hebrews 12, he says, You have not come to the mountain, the fire, the blackness, the darkness, the tempest, the sound of a trumpet, with the words who they heard it beg that the words should not be spoken to them. Verse 22, But you, you who are a believer in Christ, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, to the blood of the sprinkling that speaks of better things than that of Abel. We have not come to a terrifying, distant hard to grasp relationship with God we have come to a close personal upfront relationship with God now why does he use the name Mount Zion geographically Zion or Mount Zion 
is one of the hills on which Jerusalem is built. Some of us who have been around Christianity a long time automatically associate Zion with Jerusalem. And there is a geographical connection there. It's, Zion was the site of a fortress which David and his men captured in order to make the city of Jerusalem his capital. But Zion, of course, goes much beyond that. There was a geographical location uh, in terms of Jerusalem. But in Psalm 132, verse 13 to 14, we read this, For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his habitation or dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. Now, God wasn't talking about living in Jerusalem. He was using this as the, to, to help us grab the understanding of a place where his, where his presence is known. And then as we go on in, in Hebrews 12, we find out that it's not only called Mount Zion, but it's identified further as the city of the living God. If we go back to Hebrews 11, verse 10, we find Abraham... In fact, we start in verse 9. By faith, Abraham dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country. He was a, a, a landed alien, if you will. Dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs of, of him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And then verse 16. But now they, talking about some of the other great people of faith in the Old Testament, but now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. We're going to find out later, if we were to go to the book of Revelation and study, we find out a place called the New Jerusalem, the place where God will dwell with us in eternity. This is the city of the living God. And then he goes on to talk about the inhabitants in Hebrews 12, who lives in this city? If we were to list it, we would say, well, there are countless angels. He says they are innumerable. You know, when God says something is innumerable or uncountable, uh, that means there's really a lot. <laughs> Verse 23, he says the second inhabitants of this city the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. That is a, a deluxe way to say New Testament believers. In Luke 10.20, Jesus said, Be glad that your name is written in heaven. Here he calls it registered. We're having a big brouhaha in Washington State about how we're going to have primaries for political elections and part of it goes along, part of the brouhaha is, are we going to make you declare what party you're part of and only vote in that certain way or not? They're fussing around about that. We used to have the privacy, you know, to, to not tell where you're, where you're registered as a political party. Hey, you know what? You're registered as a Christian. We ought to have Christian registration cards that we carry, maybe, you know. Home, heaven. You are registered in heaven. God has your name written down. In the book of Revelation, he refers to the Lamb's book of life. If you've accepted Christ as your Savior, there's an entry that says Dave Lunsford or whatever your name is. 
He says the believers are there in this Mount Zion, in this city of God. And then he goes on to say, not only are there New Testament believers there, but he says, the God judge of all. He writes it, instead of saying the God, the judge, he says the God judge. It kind of, kind of makes a compound name for God, if you will. God is there in this place. And then he goes on to say, um, to the spirits of just men made perfect. I believe that's a reference to the Old Testament believers. Abraham was justified, the scripture tells us, because of his faith. And so Abraham would be one of those people and all of the other true Old Testament time frame believers. And then we come to the, to the peak of this mountain, to the apex, when he says, Jesus is there. The mediator of the new covenant. The person whose blood is sprinkling us and that blood speaks of better things than that of Abel's. Reference to Abel's blood could be a reference to his own blood shed. Could be a reference to the sacrifice that Abel made. Either way, he says, the blood of Jesus is much more important and, and barely compares to the blood of Abel. But what does it mean when he says, says, you have come to this place? Turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. I've been laying the groundwork here for what I think is the message that God wants us to understand. In Colossians 3, starting in verse 1, he says, if, and it could well be translated since, or, or I'm assuming that this is true of you, if you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God, set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Did you know that you live in heaven? You say, well, I thought I, I lived on the Imhoff Road, on Sunview Place. God has positionally placed you in heaven at the moment you accepted Christ as your Savior. You are with Christ in God in heaven. In Hebrews 12, the way he writes it is, you have come to the city of God. You live in heaven in the very presence of God. You have nothing to fear in his presence and every help to gain. Back in Hebrews 12, as we would think about these different people who are in heaven, I believe part of what God wants us to understand is not only the privilege of our position, but the power that comes from it. First of all, we have peace. In Colossians 1.19, we read this, for it pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell, and by Him, by Jesus, to reconcile all things to Himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of His cross. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now He has reconciled. As we think about the fact that we have been placed in heaven, 
we understand, first of all, that that is accomplished by the blood of Christ, which we remembered this morning, taking away our sins. And the result of that is peace. When you look up to heaven, when you think there ought to be peaceful thoughts. If you are worrying about what's going to happen when you die, it's entirely likely that you have not truly crossed the bridge of faith in Christ. I'm going to be preaching at a, at a memorial service on Tuesday for a lady who was a bartender for 30 years in Ferndale. And uh, I received a phone call this week. They said uh, she's a relative of, of Frieda Brulin. She's Frieda Brulin's daughter-in-law. They said she's been given two weeks to two months to live. She has lung cancer. She actually lasted two days. And they called and said she'd like to talk to you. So I went in. And I thought, this is the time to cut right to the chase. I said, are you ready to die? Nope. And I could sense in what she was saying that she was talking about not being ready to leave this life. And I said, so my next question was, are you ready to meet Jesus? Yep. She'd accepted the, girl, the, the Lord as a, as a young person and walked way away from him. But when push came to shove, she said, boy, I, I need the Lord and I want to believe in the Lord and I do believe in the Lord. And she came to a very confident faith in Christ and her kids, uh, at least one of whom really knows the Lord, talked about various specific evidences of her Christianity, even in her last few days. They said she was peaceful when she died. Folks, the root of peace in life is knowing where you're going. How can you be at peace if you don't know what's going to happen? I'm driving down the road. I don't know what might happen. I might die and all. Oh. The root of peace is peace with God. And God says that you have that if you have put your faith in Christ because his blood has taken away your sin. Wow, what a great privilege is ours to be at peace with God. And then he goes on to say not only do we have peace, but we have power. He says, you have come to Mount Zion. To me, this, this is sort of a reminder of chapter 10, verse 19, which says, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. With a true heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That is exactly what the people around Mount Sinai did not have. Not only did God not invite them to draw near, God said, you stay away. That's really foreign to our concept of God, isn't it? <laughs> you stay away. Well, he was wanting them to understand their sinfulness and by example, he was wanting to teach us so that now we might look back and go, oh, person who doesn't know Christ and whose sins have not been forgiven, that person is not prepared to be with God. But us, we can come near with boldness. We can talk to God. My wife and I are following this show called The Apprentice where 
Donald Trump has collected 20 people from around the country or however many, and they go through these tough business tests every week, and one of them gets fired. And at the end, one person is going to get offered a, a job with a large salary running one of his companies. And so every week when they accomplish this task, the team that wins gets a reward. And the team that loses, somebody gets fired. So this week, he looked this guy in the eye that was the team leader, and he said, your reward for winning this week is going to be 10 minutes with me. He said, a lot of people would like to spend 10 minutes with me. You're going to get 10 minutes with me. And besides thinking how arrogant, <laughs> I thought, you know what? I can talk to the God of the universe anytime I want. I can have 10 minutes or 10 hours. And he is right there to listen to me. How can I possibly go through life and, and give up when things get hard when the God of the universe is sitting right there saying, let's talk, Dave. That's the point of this passage. In the greater uh, text of Hebrews 12, he's saying, look, God is going to allow hardship in your life, and it's going to be difficult, but he's going to do it to grow you up in Christ. Now he says, look, Christian, look where you're at. You have peace with God, and not only that, you have access right into the very presence of God to gain his power. What a great privilege is ours. Thirdly, he talks about the innumerable company of angels. Now, we need to be a little bit careful because certainly folks have gone really overboard in trying to understand the role that angels play. But it's clear in Scripture that God's angels and the demons, which are angels that fell, are doing battle. There, are, there is spiritual battle going on that we do not see. And we do not understand, and we should be very careful to try and label all of this stuff that's going on as some of our Christian brothers do. But it's very clear that it's going on. In Ephesians 6.12, it says, we are not battling just with physical difficulties. We are battling spiritual entities. And do you know what, Christian? There are angels who are fighting battles for you. That seems to be the impact of the scripture here. God sends the angels to do his bidding, and part of it is defending you. I don't know about you, but I've had a few close calls in my life. Some of them were physical, and some of them were spiritual. And God says he is working for our protection. And part of the way he does that is through angels. We have God's peace, we have his power, we have his protection. And then he also talks about this this group of believers, both New Testament and Old Testament believers. We have the people of God. It's, it sort of is a reference, I think, back to chapter 12, verse 1. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. He says, when you come into the very presence of God, there is the general assembly and church of the firstborn. Firstborn being a reference, obviously, to Christ being the first one resurrected. But we are also talk, called the fruit, the firstborn fruits of his resurrection. There are Christians in heaven who have already succeeded in applying this verse in their life. There is no temptation that has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able to bear, but will with the temptation provide a means of escape that you may be able to bear it. 
as we think about the people that are in heaven, maybe, maybe that's something for us to meditate on once in a while. Do you know somebody who had a great struggle in life and is with the Lord now? Did they keep strong to the end? Did they give up? How do you want it to be when you're there? We've come to this great group. It ought to motivate us, ought to encourage us. And then last, but certainly not least, we come to the person of Christ. Christ is there in heaven. The person of our salvation. Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? And of course, in, in Romans 6, 7, and 8, Paul's talking about the struggle to live righteously. He's talking about the fact that it's hard for him sometimes. The habits of sin cause him to do the things that he should not do. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things. Do you know that you are called a co-heir with Christ? God has given you all things along with Christ. Verse 33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Is it God? It, is it God? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Hey, let's go back and rewrite that verse, Christian. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall a difficulty with my boss? Shall a husband or wife that's hard to get along with? Shall a big test at school? Downturn in the stock market? What is it that's going to separate you from the love of Christ? As it is written, verse 36, For your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's like Hebrews 12. He says, look, you're going to go through some difficult things. I'm going to be there with you, training you to be like Christ. See, right here, he says, we are more than conquerors in these things. God doesn't say he's going to take all that stuff away. He's going to make you a conqueror in them. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What does it mean that Christ is there in the city of God where you are? It means that he is intervening on your behalf and he will never cast you out. And now we come to verse 25 in Hebrews 12 when he really brings this home. He says, God is training you. That's going to involve some difficulty. In verse 18, he says, now look, 
You're not in this Old Testament time frame where God is distant and hard to know. He says you're close to God. And look, verse 25, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. That sounds like a pretty stern warning to me. See to it that you do not refuse him. For, and he goes back to the Old Testament, if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on the earth, it's making a reference to the fact that God made his voice audible on the earth and God made himself known from that mountain and spoke out of it. If they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more we will not escape if we turn from him who speaks from heaven. He goes on to say, back then, his voice shook the earth. Talked about the mountain quaking. But now he has promised saying, I'm going to shake not only the earth, but the heaven. Now yet, this once more indicates the removal of those things that are going to be shaken. Our position, our privilege to be in the presence of God and to have all of his resources demands commitment. Now there's a little bit of a, a, little bit of a thought process that's real important because I'm going to use the word I'm going to use the word success a couple times but I'm not using it like the world uses. Because God does not demand that you achieve. He demands that you give effort and apply yourself and make progress. The privilege of relationship includes the responsibility of obedience. It is a responsibility for you to obey God. Chapter like this kind of flies in the face of how we'd like to paint God or how a lot of people in the world would like to paint God. God is love. That's absolutely true. And you know why God is a consuming fire? Because he wants you to know that he is serious about the things he's asking of you. God loves you and wants to give you all that we just looked at there in heaven. And he wants you to know it's not a suggestion. It's not an option. Have you ever had a child who wanted to live in your house, eat your food, burn your gas, spend your money, break your rules, and call you unreasonable and demand freedom and respect? Don't raise your hand. Have you ever known a child who wanted to eat the food, burn the gas, spend the money, break the rules, call the parents unreasonable and demand freedom and respect? And how did this make you feel? Oh, hey, no problem. Well, you know, I gave it a shot. That's the way it goes. You know what? That's what God is saying right here, folks. He's saying, listen, Christian, I have given you the world and heaven. <laughs> I've given you everything I possibly can give you. Now, don't you mess around with it. Don't you, don't you dabble in it. Don't you spurn it. Don't you say, thanks, God, for my eternal salvation. See you later. That's part of what this Hebrews 12 is about. He's saying, look, God loves you so much, he's not going to let you do that. He's going to create hardship in your life. He uses the word scourging in verse 6, so that you will take him seriously. 
See to it that you do not refuse him. We know that in the Old Testament, and particularly about the people of Israel coming out of Egypt, being at Mount Sinai, I mean, right there they sinned and God judged some of them. And then they go on. There's all these series of sins and judgments. Now, I, I want to be clear again, and, and, and I understand that good Bible scholars would disagree you know, on both sides of this issue. I believe that when those folks put the blood on their doorpost and stayed inside and ate the Passover lamb, that that was their commitment to God like ours when we put our faith in Christ. And I believe when they came out and disobeyed God and he judged them, it wasn't sending them to hell. It was the cutting short of their life. God tells us in the New Testament that that is also possible. What Hebrews 12, I believe, teaches us is that there's a lot of things short of God taking your life. And I don't mean to be unreasonable in preaching that you should live in fear of your life every day. I don't believe that. But I believe what he's talking about here, Christian, is this. If you refuse to follow God's path, God is going to do something to get you on that path because he loves you too much to just let you walk away. Thank you for listening to Hope for Life, the broadcast teaching ministry of the First Baptist Church of Ferndale, Washington. You can learn more about our ministry on the internet at www.ferndalebaptist.com or you can contact us by mail at First Baptist Church, P.O. Box 69, Ferndale, Washington, 98248. Telephone 360-384-3111. We invite you to join us for worship Sunday mornings at 1045 a.m. Our prayer is that God's Word will give you hope for life.